Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine, LD at Large. Thank you all for tuning in. I am another long day in self-isolation. I got to hang out with my kids today. We went on a nice long walk. And I took a little bit of time off to hang out with my kids because I'm working a little bit late tonight because I am chatting with Laura Frank. She is the founder at Luminous FX, and currently she's the technology consultant and now author. Uh, she is in Japan, so in order to get our times to line up, this was going to be the best time. Thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate you being able to make the time to chat with me. Really happy to be here. Uh, I can see in the background that the, the, the rest of the people can't see that you are in a beautiful Japanese I, w- I want to call it a bungalow. I'm sure there's a much better name for it than, uh, than what bungalow I know. Bungalow cabin. It, yes, is totally appropriate. It is called a machia, and it is, it is the traditional Japanese cottage-style home. That looks beautiful. Was this a strategic place for you to weather the storm, or was this just a happy accident? It, it was a combination. Japan was definitely our, our destination. Uh, I believe probably late February or March, if for those who maybe don't know, my husband and I have spent the last year and a half, a little more now, traveling uh, internationally as digital nomads. Our plan was to wander, explore the concept of slow travel. Um, the original version had been, you know, pick a city, live in it for a month, move on to the next city. And within that, we were looking for ways to continue some aspect of our former professional lives or discover new ones and see what we could work on remotely. There are hundreds of thousands of people who live this way now. It's a, it's a community especially dominated by people who work in tech as coders or project managers. But we were exploring that digital nomad community for ourselves and wandering the planet. So we were in Vietnam when uh, the virus broke out in Wuhan. Um, we had already traveled six weeks through China, so we may have had a little more insight and awareness to some of these mega cities. So when I started seeing these these cities of 11, 12 million that were being locked down that no one's ever heard of, really, I started equating to my friends, well, like, you know, think about the New York City, the tri-state area, what it would it take to lock down a community like that? And, and start contemplating that. And so, you know, here I, Dan and I are grappling with making sure we have masks and, and uh, you know, thinking about, well, what's travel going to look like for us for the future? And as the days and weeks wore on, Southeast Asia, where we were at the time in Hanoi, Vietnam, seemed to be handling the outbreak quite well. So we didn't have really a plan, except we were just going to keep watching the news and waiting and see what the impacts to our lifestyle were really going to be. And I think it was in late February or early March that dialogue became not if, but when we were going to be locked down and where did we want to be. So our forward plans had always included Japan and South Korea for the spring blossoms. And when South Korea's cluster took off, we kind of removed that for the list. And we had other plans. We had plane tickets to Bali. We, you know, trying to do our best to, to live the life that we had established for ourselves. But, um, you know, things just kept accelerating. And at this point, we had left La- uh, Vietnam with the understanding that our next destination, Laos, may be the last place we go to for a while. And w- did we want to be locked down in Laos? What did that mean? When we got there, at the time, there were zero cases. Um, we were also told there were no tests. So, you know, when you look at the whole world <laughs> and understand testing capabilities, some places are blissfully 
living in an existence that looks quite healthy, but you know, you have to understand the politics and the medical capabilities that inform Mm -hmm. that. So we did have a little trouble getting to our, to Japan, you know, minor compared to what I've heard some stories of people like I had a friend, it took him nine days to get home from Timor-Leste back to Vermont. Uh, Some other digital nomad friends just spent nearly three days trying to get back from Kerala, India to Canada. You know, these things started happening to people, especially as Southeast Asia was experiencing this second wave largely brought on from uh, European travelers, uh, vacation travelers. Borders were starting to close. Laos was slow to respond, but we kept watching Japan. And when we got here, we assumed we were headed to Osaka and we're going to just pause there. And when we got to Kyoto, we realized we were in a smaller city for Japan standards in a country with very, uh, with a very good infrastructure and good medical care. And unlike a lot of the Asian countries we had bidden, Japan is a more liberal and open society. So when it comes to what a lockdown actually means here, it's a, a more complex issue. We watched carefully and talked to people who were in China and watched the the wave of lockdowns that happened in Vietnam when their second wave of the virus happened. And um, you legally can't do anything like that here. So it's been interesting. There is a state of emergency here now. We are following stay-at-home protocols, but there are restaurants still open here if if that's what you want to do. That is so refreshing to hear, especially... <laughs> Being an expat from the United States, when people talk about freedoms and freedoms from and freedoms to positive and negative freedoms, just uh, the hoorah that the United States is the most free, but it's a lot of them forget about the responsibilities that come with those freedoms and the responsibilities that are required to maintain those freedoms. And it sounds like Japan is doing a great job of maintaining the responsibility level that comes with those freedoms. It sounds like they're all being very safe and I mean, just little things like universal healthcare alone is like, you can be yeah. so much more free when you have, when people are taken care of. There, this, the social support, the, the community support, it's like that. I mean, I, and I could go deep into this and I'm sure that's not where we're going to spend an hour, but Japan has this beautiful Asian history that recognizes the value of community and community engagement that does slip into conformity in a way Mm -hmm. that I think most Westerners would, you know, bristle at. But the other side of that translation is, um, you know, little things like mask. No one questions the mask wearing here. You wear it not for you, but for others as Mm -hmm. a, as a community gesture of goodwill. That, that is how people perceive masks here. And so, you know, mask wearing has dominated flu season here for years. So when the numbers started growing, I mean, the first cases happened in Japan when the first cases happened in America. But there is a culture here of mask wearing. People do not touch each other here. Mm-hmm. There is no handshaking. There is no hugging. I I, I would, I, I'm a hugger. Like that, that's, <laughs> that's something I have to get used to here. <laughs> um, but th- there is also hand sanitizer at every door. There is, you know, it's just that, that, cultural gesture of care and concern. I would imagine even the elected uh, representatives are wearing masks and washing their hands and making a good show of responsibility. Yeah. That sounds refreshing. Yeah, that message is reinforced throughout. Mm -hmm. Now there are all sorts of other political, social problems here. But um, when it comes to the virus, this is a kind of a a perfect integration of Western and Eastern thought and the way it's being carried out. I find it's, it's very interesting, but we feel lucky to be here and being able to continue some semblance of our formal lifestyle in in the exploration of, of world cultures and and learning, but we're also very aware of what's happening at home and concern Mm -hmm. for our families and friends and our community. I've always been very appreciative of people who do travel. When I was younger, I could do backpacking where I would be in any place for two days and then move on. And you never actually get to see anything. All you get to see is the touristy shops and the, the things that aren't actually part of that town. I would imagine yeah. you get to see the Las vegas parts, whereas Las Vegas is not that. But being able to go to a town and just actually sit and explore and 
find your favorite market, learn the waiter's names at a, at a restaurant. Yeah. Things that really make traveling worthwhile. And I would imagine you absolutely more that. It's, it was kind of the framework of how we were approaching this journey. It's like, well, we, we want to become a familiar face in the local coffee shop. We want, you know, a smile when we walk into a market. Um, someone may know the kind of coffee beans we like or the, the you know, mm-hmm. just familiar with us at the cashier. So that things that, that go beyond the language barrier, just that kindness of familiarity where someone will make accommodations for your foreignness and even maybe enjoy the fact that you are making that effort to kind of participate in in the community and you know some places are are more open to that or or not but yeah that that was really something we 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 became terrible tourists basically like all the sites that you know the guidebooks say you go to we'd be visiting them the last week we'd spend any (laughs) place rushing around like oh we were supposed to go see this thing and yeah that's exactly what a local does uh being from i grew up near san francisco and i've never seen alcatraz Everybody's. If you ever go to San Francisco, you got to go to Alcatraz. I'm like, I'm, it's on my list. I just haven't done it because that's what you do when you're local. You go to Andy's supermarket and you, uh, no, Alcatraz. I've been to Andy's supermarket a hundred times and that's great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah 12 years you, in New York City and I, I never went to the Statue of Liberty. I mean, <laughs> why, why do you do that? Yeah, I see it every day. I just, why would I take the time over to there. go over there? Yeah, it's over there. You become contributor. I feel like you become a contributor when you're staying in a town for longer. You're not taking. I feel like a lot of the people that are bouncing in and out for two days, they're just taking from that city. They're not really helping. Whereas you're actually contributing to the place. You're actually uh, you're, you're renting. You're you're actually doing a, a a fair amount of interaction. So right. So so look at our our travel lifestyle in our industry, right? E- even when we do have a little time, um, like if you're on a tour and maybe you have an extra day in a city or you're down from a tour from from a job and you go on vacation, you know, it's all for those to be done efficiently, for those trips and excursions to be done efficiently, we all rely on these international businesses to make that happen. We stay at a brand name hotel, typically. Um, we eat at restaurants that are owned by these large conglomerates. It, to, to dig into a community and understand like where the mom and pop restaurants are or you know, the thing that hasn't hit Instagram or um, eater.com yet, these little special experiences that feel local and unique, those, those don't bubble to the surface as easily anymore because we have this wonderful way of sharing that information. As soon as someone finds this little gem and it, gets, it hits Instagram, it becomes a, this little darling. Um, there's a great story about a food stall vendor in Bangkok who received a Michelin star and she wants to give it back. You know, she ended up in documentaries and that Instagrammers showed up and the influencers showed up and, you know, it's like she's had to hire more people just to manage the crowds around her little stall. And, and of course, for her in an Asian country, as a member of community, the disruption that's created around her impacts other businesses. So it's become this liability. Yeah. When, when the hidden gem isn't hidden anymore, it just becomes an exploited gem. Yeah. That's tough. And we certainly saw in, in the traveler community, you know, this desperate hunt for where those gems were. And you're like, wait, no, slow down. Like, those are special. Mm-hmm. Find them and enjoy them and move on, please. So as a digital nomad, you're basically bouncing from Wi-Fi to Wi-Fi. You're looking for places with decent internet so you can still work to fund your next journey. Right. I, in fact, one of my career, my next career choices could be like Airbnb advisor. If anybody wants to know how to read those photographs and in between the lines of reviews and make sure you have decent internet, we have a whole bullet point list of finding good Airbnbs sight unseen. So. And even being in the entertainment business, you're able to do this. You can travel the world and ch- check in with your emails and you can still make a living, right? 
Uh, this living is not funding our trip yet. This was right. this was years of thoughtful saving, which is a topic we should also talk about. Yes, that's the plan. We are connected. We are looking for ways to work remotely. I'm not going to even suggest I figured out how to do that relative to our business. I certainly spent the first part of our journey up to the first year building this textbook writing it and publishing it. The the plan for the next phase of that textbook was to then start doing um, presentations in conjunction with the travel in order to build and understand the international community doing the work I was doing in in screens production. And and that's, that's been fascinating. Like I started giving presentations last October, starting in Shanghai. And as we worked our way through um, the rest of Asia, uh, Taiwan, Bangkok and uh, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City. We, I was interacting with with our production community and understanding what this work looked like in other parts of the world, and and it's fascinating. And I would love to continue doing that. That's amazing. So why don't we talk about the book a little bit? It is called Screens Producing and Media Operations, uh, and that is available online now. People can find it and buy it. I'll definitely put a link to where they can purchase in the, in the notes. What inspired you to put, to put that together? Well, I, I definitely saw that there might be a book to follow along from Brad Schiller's programming textbook, Vicki Claiborne's media server um, programming book. Um, what, what's the next step? Because those textbooks mimic my personal work history, moving through lighting programming into media server programming the next tasks demanded of people who've been in those roles um, as they gain more responsibility and the shows get more complex is really building a workflow and learning how to communicate with uh, content designers, content production people, and um, the video engineering on the other side of that equation, having a good communication and uh, workflow planning with screens engineers and technical managers on the kind of broadcast work that I was doing. So the book was designed to take people with some of that background, also start reaching out to other members in the video video screens production community and help them understand the languages we all come from and give outline a workflow to help those teams work together. So the book really is about defining who those teams are, what their primary goals are in, in a production environment and giving them all tools to be better partners to each other. So I outline a content production workflow to help screens content producers and creators screen engineering and uh, media operations is the term I came up with to catch the group of people around media server programming and um, playback operations, that whole team of people driving the signal flow to screen and the images, creative imagery to screen. That comes up so often where the video team and the media server team have to coordinate because if they need to zoom out or zoom in or readjust something, they have to decide who's going to do that. Like, look, either I can zoom up or you guys can reformat or, you know, I, it happens all too often where something comes in one frame rate and then they can't accept another. Whereas if somebody just could oversee all that, it would reduce so much headache. Or even if they have this, the same jargon available right. to them. Well, none of us can even agree what a raster map or a template or a, you know, no, none of us have the same word for the image of what you're supposed to be delivering to mm-hmm. the media programmer is. Yeah. I would love to be able to, if more people could read the book and kind of standardize some of that jargon shift or pan or tilt or zoom or scale. You're like, come on, you guys, let's, let's sort out what we're trying to talk about here. I was just going to say, so what happened to me in my media server programmer role um, was I needed, it became a more complex job, right? Because I'm communicating with the other designers. They see me as a design partner. I'm communicating with the screens engineers. They see me as an engineering component. They see me as part of their signal flow. And then I've got producers who don't really have a head of operations for this growing department. So you know, I had to wear too many hats. So of course, before I could convince the producers to hire hire more people and distribute the work, 
I had to at least make my job manageable. Um, Cause I think we've all heard those horror stories of just like, uh, you know, that role cratering because there's just too much pressure. You know, content gets misdelivered as you're describing or, it, you know, silly things like it just comes in with a name that has great meaning for the content oh. team, but not for the programmer. So you don't know when or where this file is supposed to go or what screen it's supposed to go on and who's managing all that communication. So if it falls to the media server programmer and the media server programmer is already underwater because of all these other communication responsibilities, let's, let's build a real team. Let's have a screens producer, have them coordinating with all these different departments that consider mm -hmm. themselves video. And they are, they're just one aspect of this much larger concept of what video has become. Mm -hmm. And let's build a real team that can make these shows run efficiently because they can. On five different shows, I've seen five different workflows of how it goes from content creation into the media server and then onto the wall. And it's, it's endlessly frustrating that, you know, one company, no, this is the way we always do it. Well, that won't work because we're not using Pandora's box. We're using Mbox here. So I need yeah. you to label it this way. Like, uh, I'm not going to do that. Okay. Well then yet now I have to be the one to take all your stuff. Yeah. I'm going to update the name. And then when I need an update from you, you have to change your name. And uh, that is, that is a job all on its own. Yeah. And uh, I'm so thankful for people like you that have been on both, both sides of that chair, the, the producing and the receiving. So that's uh, thank you for being able to put that in the <laughs> book that people can hopefully listen to and standardize and, and read that and figure out the best workflow. Well, that's great. Well, the book is, is for us. It's for our community to better understand each other, but it's also for the people who hire us, honestly, to understand why this team needs to be more established, better compensated, and given more authority because we're effectively, we cross over into lighting and to scenic now. Um, with mm -hmm. the amount of screen real estate we have on a show, we impact all aspects of lighting for better, for good or ill. <laughs> um, so we, we need to really liaison as a design partner, because as a screens producer, I'd never really considered myself in a design role, more of an editor role. I'm supporting content designers to realize their vision and do it in such a way that my team is not um, bogged down in like nuisance issues like file naming. Let's come up with a clear workflow that supports everyone's process so that content teams want to help us because we're supporting them. We're supporting the engineering teams so that communication remains good and positive. Um, we understand each other's technical goals and the problems they face getting there, and we're going to support each other through it. That way, as a screens producer, I can go to lighting and say, deal with the finesse issues of, of color temperature and not overtaking the stage, turn, when to turn off the screen. So lighting is the dominant creative driver of a, of a shot or a moment on stage. Working with scenic design to understand, okay, well, you put all these screens here. How do you envision your set in this digital world? What, what are your visual goals? Because we've become the scenic artists. So yeah, I, I imagine it's just a better holistic process and I want our executive producers to support us getting there. Yeah, you, we have almost completely taken over the set design world. You can just throw up a, a handful of video walls and now you have endless amounts of sets. You just need, uh, yeah. as soon as you realize how expensive really good content creation is, you go, oh, well, now I can have any set I want to at any time as long as I can coordinate it properly. What was the natural progression from you going from moving lights to media server to screens producer? Was it by design or did you just uh, just keep getting asked to put more on your plate? I, I, think, I think the best way to describe it is, you know, it was a combination of design and trust and relationships. I, I spent many years building good relationships with designers and producers so that when a moment comes that I get interested by these new uh, digital lights that were getting talked about in 2000, 2001, that, 
you know, I have the relationships that I can go to those people and say, hey, this is, I think I can apply my focus here now. I'm looking for opportunities to do so. Which means that there are two components. I'm asking someone who trusts me in a lighting programmer role to maybe now not use me in that role and, and allow me to go experiment with something else. And they have to take a risk on somebody. But in a lot of cases, I was fortunate that um, I didn't have like one of those strong partnerships where I was responsible for one or two designers for, for programming all their shows. I was working regularly as a programming second to a lot of people or working for designers who maybe worked in many different markets and had programmers in, in each of those markets that they kind of went to. So I had a really kind of um, full roster of, of people I could re reach out to and say, hey, I'm, I'm looking to move in this direction. And it both didn't cause them any concern that their shows weren't going to get done to their level of standard. And they, they could throw my name out when this kind of conversation came up. So those shifts were organic and that I was always kind of looking to move my career in things that I found personally interesting and then had those relationships to let those um, choices evolve naturally. Sometimes they were a little, not so natural. Um, I, I took a three-month sabbatical one year to teach myself graphics and web design and, and uh, just understand more the language of what I saw before as media servers were starting to be talked about so that when I came back, you know, after having turned down some work, I could, I could then say, okay, well, when I start this back up again, I want to do these kind of things. And, you know, sometimes those opportunities popped up and sometimes they didn't. And it was tricky. You know, I wasn't clear what the, the path forward would be. It looks a lot like right now. That is one of the, the topics I really want to hit home on this one is how scary that is and how brave you have to be when you're ready to step from one specialization to another, you have to take the time to make yourself specialized in that field. And you have to be able to say no to the last gig or to the, the last specialization you had. So if, let's say I'm jumping from crew chief to programmer. And as soon as I decide that, okay, I'm going to learn programming. I'm going to get a hundred phone calls for crew chief jobs. Right. And you're going to say, man, I really, I need to stake, take the next level. I'm not a crew chief anymore. I'm a programmer now. I took the time. I made the investment. I'm a programmer now. I would love to abandon all this stuff and go make that quick money, but I'm not a crew chief anymore. And that is so terrifying for so many people. It really is. And, I, and I've done it a few times because I went from being a Verilite crew chief to programming. And it took, it took stepping back from, you know, the, the rates I could command from, you know, there were maybe a couple of clients that I could say, like, if you are in a bind, you need to let me know. I will be your crew chief. But from here forward, I only want to do this particular job. I only want to be lighting programming. I'm going to be doing 12 light programming gigs and turning away the 500 light crew chief gigs. It's hard to rebuild that momentum that you're used to. And you need a little war chest set aside to understand that that, that savings in the bank is, is two things, right? It's, it's time. It's an investment in yourself. And it's the ability for transformation because you can rely on that savings to get through a process of reinventing yourself. So uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to reach out to you specifically is because your name comes up a lot. Uh, one, I have this one article that I wrote for PLSN and it's called The Tales of Jack Jenner and Susie Sific. And basically it is a thinly veiled moniker for the jack of all trades and the person who is super specific into what they do what they do and how difficult of a transformation that is to be perfectly honest i just made one male and one female because i thought it would be balanced but when it came out i had about seven emails come back they're like you're talking about laura frank aren't you 
Well, <laughs> I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. What do you think? I don't, I, I've worked with Laura before where she's in one room and I'm in another, but we've never actually met. And they're like, no way. I read this and you're definitely talking about Laura Frank. I have and to read this. I, I will send it to you. I'll, I'll link it in the notes as well. But uh, I, I probably got about five to seven people going like that is not you, you, you didn't hide that at all. You're definitely talking about Laura Frank. So that just goes to show that clearly you are respected as a very specific protocol. You're so good at what you do that uh, you can charge more and work less, which is I, my end goal for sure. Sure. That, that was certainly the, the, the goal. It's, it's like, as you, as you specialize and you develop this expertise, that expertise needs to be informed by a wealth of wider knowledge. And I, I remember moving to New York City in 1993, and I took any job. Like I was rigging, I toured doing sound. I like, of course, my interest was lighting design and uh, modern dance, actually. That's where I wanted to spend my time. But I, I mean, I built some terrible scenery, like I think <laughs> anything, because I wanted to understand the industry. And then I would kind of point that ship, make it more streamlined and more focused in its direction. And I just, kept continually doing that it's a it's uncharted waters that you're piloting through too because you can as a stagehand you can work seven days a week especially in new york city but when you start to progress farther and farther and your skill set becomes more specific you're going to get called less and less but you're going to make more and more which is it's a really tough transition to make. And you really have to, like you said, you have to have a certain amount of money set aside to be able to, you have to be able to afford to say no to the people that, that have come to depend on you as a crew chief. Absolutely. Uh, I, and so I, I took the approach too, that if, if I was going to keep moving, right. And I, I always knew who, what the kind of team around that, that I was building around my work and, you know, people that engaged with me. Like if I was going to move out of a certain market and try and refocus myself or, or narrow my focus, that I'd already identified some people around me who could fill in those roles. I think that's the other thing about building Ooh, trust with point. clients, right? Is you, is if you help them achieve their goals, and let's face it, a lot of their goals are, are pretty simple and straightforward. They just need to be successful too, <laughs> right? And they have to deliver a show. So if I can say, all right, I want to, I, I want to move out of crew chief or I want to move out of moving light programming into this other place. But you know what? I've been working with the so-and-so and I think they're ready for this step or, you know, they're really excellent and um, I'm going to bring them in, in on this other show to work with me. They're coming in for free. They're coming in as a second programmer, you know, creating those relationship building opportunities so that you, when you say this other opportunity has shown up, I've got this person ready to take the role you rely on me for. You have to almost I've, completely let go of your ego in order to replace yourself with somebody that you trust. I think if your ego is your priority, you will not be able to do what we're talking about. Oh, that is, that is a valid point for sure. If anybody's listening right now, that was a, that was a nugget of wisdom right there. <laughs> you're, you're not going to get paid for the size of your ego. You're going to get paid for your humility and your honesty and your skill set. You find yourself talking about yourself more than your clients do, then you're good. You're secretly losing money and you don't even know it. Absolutely. You, you're losing, you're locking yourself up into a role that at some point you're just going to become a dinosaur in anyway. So take the risk, constantly keep learning and exploring. Um, it, it's worth the risk. And, and I think faced with where we are right now, everyone is recognizing maybe they're, stuck someplace they're they're not so excited to return to this is this is a potentially an opportunity for us to reshuffle the deck of the work we do and yes we can all come back strong if there are real jobs to come back to and forget this happened or 
we can use this as a platform for change. And especially for anybody coming up nowadays, it's so much easier to learn new skills. Uh, just even a decade ago, there weren't nearly the resources available now to be able to take time off. Because I mean, honestly, learning was very expensive 10 years ago. Sure. You'd, have to go, you'd have to wait for an LDI or you'd have to travel to New York to take a hog class or you'd have to travel to LA to take a, a Grand MA class. But that's all online now. You could be traveling Kyoto and you could still be taking a webinar from legends in our, in our field. There's, there's less excuses nowadays to not progress into the, the specialization that you care to. So, right. So there, there's a couple of points you've brought up that I think are really important. It's like, okay, so we have access to the training. Then the next piece is experience and that's about relationship building. And there are all sorts of online com communities, a lot of them in Facebook where people are talking about this stuff. And here's a moment in time where you can engage with people because they have time and maybe build relationships so that when shows are in, are happening again, you can shadow people, you can, you know, engage in such a way. And again, this is, I think to your point about humility, you may have great expertise in say um, some other aspect of the industry uh, where you're trying to shift the needle, move into a new market or a new skill set. You have to be humble enough in that moment of time to say, all right, I'm the novice again now. And just be open and listen and engage with people. And I, people respond to that. People respond really well to this idea that if, if, if you show up open and, and ready to learn, um, I think that has, I think that gets a lot of respect. It must have been very tough for you to go from top of the heap crew chief to bottom of the heap programmer. Um, I think I... I'm fortunate that I can let a lot of things just go over my head. So <laughs> I was so enthralled and engaged with the technology I was learning. Sure, I'll go program a, a wedding dance party. I, I don't need to crew chief that big high dollar award show. Like it's just because I was I was having such a good time and and it was exciting. And you know that to me, it if you're excited about the tech. It, if you're applying your trade, you, it doesn't matter where you are. <laughs> that is uh, the embodiment of zero fucks right there. You're like, <laughs> I, I don't give a fuck. That's what I want to do. I'm going to go program a, a wedding or a bar mitzvah. That's what I want to do. I, I, I think that's. I think that's a good, uh, a, a good descriptor to, to those who think zero fucks is about not caring. It's about all the caring, right? Yes. It's about <laughs> yes. yes. It's not yeah. apathy. It's, it's not apathy. It's I care so much about this that I don't give a fuck about that. And I I don't give a fuck about what you think about my <laughs> zero fucks of joy that I have for what I'm I'm really excited about doing right now. <laughs> So if anybody has never experienced Laura Frank's uh, Facebook feed, it is full <laughs> of zero fucks. And it is the most inspirational, motivational Facebook feed you're going to come across. You're going to learn about Angkor Wat one day, and you're going to learn what, what Laura Frank does not give a fuck about the next day. It is so refreshing to watch your Facebook feed. I, I think... Well, thank you. I, um, it, you know, one has to be careful as one gets farther along in their middle of life that their rantings don't go off the deep end. <laughs> but I, again, that's another component of zero fucks. It's like, I'm fully in what I'm ranting about. So you can come with me or you can change yeah. the channel. It's all fine. So um, how, how did you get into zero fucks? I, it really started as, as uh, with, the, with the media server work and just somewhere between the excitement of what we were all creating and the fact that I was constantly beating my head against the machine that already existed serving the video community. I mean, come on, I come in as an outsider. I, I don't have great broadcast knowledge. I barely under, can 
list all the video signals coming out of my media server and yet I'm tasked with more and more control over these scenic environments and visual environments of these shows. So I was like, all right, well, I got to train myself. I've got to understand this language. I've got to approach these existing video communities um, with humility and, and respect and engage with them until they see that I'm here to stay. This, like the media server community and the tools we're showing up with, we are not going away. So, you know, it, it just became funny, like just having the same conversations over and over again with people about, uh, you know, oh, this, this toy it won't be around for long or having to assert that I did actually have real knowledge about or had gained real knowledge about video signal infrastructure and was determined to show up on these productions with a quality engineering kit that was worthy of their respect now. And so you're just going for broke, right? You're like, you know, you're being laughed at by an, an established process on these shows. And you're like, okay, well, I'm committed. I, you can laugh, you can joke and, um, in a year or two or 12 when I'm still here and, you know, putting these huge shows together that no longer happen without the technology I represent, you know, we can, we can laugh at it together. But it, it was just that feeling of like, we're trailblazing and I give all of zero fucks about, you know, anyone feeling that we don't belong here. Yeah. I would imagine a much, younger uh, or inexperienced Laura had too many fucks to give. Like I, I can't give fucks to everybody. So yeah. you all get zero from now on right. and zero more fucks. It's, it's emotional and it's taxing. And I'm like, I'm spinning cycles on worrying about doing this right. When there is no right. We are, we are in uncharted territory and we are going to invent this process. We hope for the betterment of everyone involved and you can come with me or we can, you know, or please enjoy your early retirement. <laughs> you know, it's, it just, it felt like I, I can't, I can't wait for you guys to come around to my way of thinking. We're going to create our way of thinking. I'd rather do it together, but right now I don't give zero fucks. <laughs> or I do give zero one of my favorite quotes is the best way to please no one is try to please everyone. Yeah. And I fell into that trap too many times where I was, I'm a people pleaser by nature. I have it in my, in my genetic code. I just want to make as many people happy as possible. And I used to run myself ragged working just saying yes to everything. Like, well, yes, I can, of course I can be in two places at one time. I I'll figure out a way to do it. And next thing you know, you've ruined yourself and you've let somebody else down because you couldn't do so many things. And ever since I kind of, I learned it, I got it, got it through Mark Manson first, uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck before yeah. I discovered uh, zero fucks. Once you realize that you're not helping anybody by trying to please everybody, it was a revelation for me. Absolutely. And, and I think the other side of that for our production work, especially when you're, when you're dealing with new technologies, it's like, it's the point I made earlier. Everyone's just trying to be successful for their role. And some people are trying to do the minimum effort to be successful. And some people are overextending themselves. But it, there's a sweet spot somewhere in between where you are doing excellent work and then feeling inspired and inspiring those around you and enjoying yourself. And, and that's, that's where I wanted my team to be headed. And Very clever. It's, it, you know, we're, we're exploring new technologies and, and at the same time have these incredible responsibilities on creating these shows if, if you're not laughing and, and having a good time, like where else does that stress go? There mm -hmm. is no, there is no pleasing everyone and doing it right. At some point we realized I can't wait 
for someone to approve the direction I'm going in. I'm going to go there and it works and they hire me again or it doesn't. And they find someone that they do work well with. And that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't work out. I don't, I don't give a fuck. It didn't work out. Yeah. So they didn't, uh, they didn't pick up what I was laying down. So, you know, that's, it's on them, not me. I, I did mm-hmm. the best I could. One of the things that I find that I've overcome is that I used to try and retool my designs and my looks over and over and over again to the point that I would still be pulling my hair out, even come house lights go. And I would be striving for the perfect look or the perfect content. And it wasn't until I realized that there was no perfect content that I, I felt better. And I realized that the very best I can present is the very best that can be presented. Do you still run into that? Cause especially in screens productions, you can always tweak something or twist something or change the saturation of something. How do you know when your work is good enough? Um, I, I'm listening to what you're saying and, and I, I want, I want to reframe the question actually. Okay. It's like, or maybe just reframe your understanding of it. And I think it, this applies to a lot of people. Something that's really infectious in our community is when you see someone working and is so excited about what they're creating that it's no longer a question, is that the best chase? Is that the best design? Is it's like, do, do the people, does that excitement translate to the audience? Because you can design the most complex, engaging visuals, but you know, there's, there's a moment that it either, it feels mechanical, it feels forced, or it just works. So is design about the best creative? It's so subjective. I don't know that that has as much meaning, but what comes through, whether it's a single spotlight or, you know, avatar, it's like, how does it feel? And, and live entertainment is that intersection of great art and emotion. And the emotion is what comes through, no matter how complex or well-designed something is. And that's, I think, what we're all grappling with now is like, what of these virtual experiences can convey that depth of care and emotion and liveness to all of us sitting in front of our computers. Wow. Yeah, it's not really about how much stress you put into it. It's about the amount of love and attention that you put into it. I'd imagine I think if you put stress in, you get stress out. If you put zero fucks in, you'll get zero fucks out. <laughs> but the 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 care and the love of zero fucks. Yes. Because I, I think that one of the components of zero fucks is vulnerability. And I think that's one of a, a very delicate understanding of zero fucks given. I give so little fucks about someone else's concern or judgment of what I'm doing that I am willing to open myself up and give everything to this process because I don't do it for the feedback of being successful. I am now doing it for myself, for my own measure of success, for my own joy and desire of what I'm creating. And that is infectious. That I think is the undercurrent of zero fucks given that does reach people. Mm. Just listening to you, the way you say it makes me feel better about, about my understanding of it. I feel like I understand it better than I thought I did. I think you do. I think you do. It because sounds, I, It sounds great. <laughs> but I mean, for yourself, for your own creative work, it's like you must have those moments where you might stress over it and then, and then you let it go. And it's like, it's, it's that aha moment or that enlightenment moment of like, I've given myself over to this and I love it. I'm moving on now. Like probably one of the best examples is some nights that I was running a show and everything just gelled. Everything was just perfect. It felt great. My knees, I was tapping in time. My, my knee was, 
you know, bouncing on the, on the front house riser at the right times. And I was hitting the go button at the right time. And then afterwards I get called into the, the production office. They're like, what the hell was that? I'm like, what are you talking about? That was a perfect show. They're like, oh, well, I felt this and I felt that. And I'm like, well, that's on you. Cause that was a perfect show. And <laughs> yeah. If you're basing it on the way that they felt the show, I mean, you have to take it into consideration, but at the same time, you're like, yeah, no, I'm sorry. That was a perfect show. I don't know what, what happened to you tonight because I mean, maybe you, maybe you had a rough day or maybe somebody said something mean to you online or something, but I don't know if you know, but that was a perfect show. So, you know. It's very subjective. Mm-hmm. So accept that about people, uh, you know, and, and the work we do. I, I like to um, use the analogy a lot that, that, we're professional athletes because I'm, I'm trying to grapple with the fact that the kind of stress I managed and the demands, like there's at some point, like it's just no longer healthy for me to take those things on. So I, I use the analogy of being a professional athlete. You can't operate at those, those extreme high levels of efficiency and output your entire life. But the other side of being an athlete is finding the, they, they talk about being in the zone where, you know, they're physically performing at optimum levels. They are kind of transcending their own experience of being in a marathon or a swim race. I think that's what we should be looking for. And yes, we need to serve our clients and make them happy, but their experience of what we do also has their own subjective reality to work through. Mm-hmm. You still have yeah, to hit the queue on time. Of absolutely. Course. You still have to hit the queue on time. That is a, that's a great place to leave this off. Thank you so much. I I feel like we could talk for hours. I feel like uh, you and I have so much more to talk about. Uh, I, I'm kind of bummed that I didn't uh, take the step over at Mandalay Bay to come from my uh, ballroom to the arena when we were working together. But uh, we will definitely have to make time to do this in person another time. I look forward to that. Thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thank you, Chris.